0: So when everyone's sitting comfortably, then we can begin. (laughs) So please, uh, if you have any questions uh, you'd like to ask, this is the opportunity. Yes.
1: um, I can see see the point where you're coming from for the talk today. but I think with, with a lot of Buddhism in England, uh, which is very middle class, mm-hmm. this acceptance and sort of... Um, you can sort of go back to like the Buddha was in his palace originally with his parents, never thinking, I can't look at anything horrible, it's take, keep me away from that. But the world has got a lot of horrible stuff in it. There's a lot of difficulty. You know, you, the Buddha actually... When he saw death and suffering, he couldn't take it in that mode. He had to, he had to really go into that suffering and that pain to understand it. He couldn't just go, "I'm not going to let it touch me." So, you know, you've got to find this balance, haven't you, with being proactive about suffering, not just turning your back on it and thinking the world's, you know, lovely.
0: Well, that's why uh, I stress acceptance. Yeah, that uh, that loving kindness is recognizing. Yeah, painful things happen. The ones that you love die. Yeah, things that are precious get taken away from you. Uh, life is raw, and so that uh, that uh, that quality of acceptance of metta is is uh, based on. Because it's, it's easy to accept the sort of sweet and benign things but accepting the, the painful and the unwanted and the threatening, that, that's much more challenging. And that's why I found that so helpful um, when years, years ago, uh, Ajahn Sumaito started uh, using that phrase, not dwelling in aversion, about, you know, to, to describe loving-kindness, because it's so easy for the mind to push things away and to, to, to reject and to, to not want so difficult or, or, or challenging things around, but um, yeah, <clears throat> that, that quality of, of acceptance of that which is um, uh, you know, the, the, the darker and more brutal aspects of life is crucial because if we're, if we're being selective about the kind of things that we want to, you know, to meet or the th- kind of things we feel I'm ready to let go of, and <laughs> then we'll, we'll never really, there's never any real freedom coming from that it's a um uh, and so that that uh, quality of loving kindness being characterized by that uh like a, an open-heartedness like yeah this is part of it this this is part of the whole deal is crucial and as long as there's something in us that's that's shutting different aspects of, of life away then to that degree we'll still not be free so uh uh you know, e- even the middle class people, even upper class people, still have uh, you know, painful physical states that you know, die of cancer, lose their loved ones, their you know, their uh, their homes collapse. You know, they they lose their homes, their finances collapse. That you know, there's there's tragedy in the human condition, and we can insulate ourselves against that in various various ways, but. And one of the things that the Buddha saw was that, that that insulation can only ever be relative. And at a certain point, we, we are always going to meet with that which is non-negotiable. Like Ajahn Chah would say, uh, aging and sickness have no manners. <laughs> They're not polite. They just show, they just show up and, and, kick, and kick the door in. They don't ask permission from, every, from anybody. And I think that... Uh, that, that recognition of, yeah, it's not according to my preferences or wishes, but yeah, the, uh, these aspects of life that uh, we have to be uh, really uh, undiscriminating, unbiased towards and, and really be open to. And the degree to which we can be open to them, there can be a genuine acceptance of, yeah, this is, this is it, this is the, the whole picture, includes this too. Then to that degree, then we'll, we'll be able to experience a genuine freedom Yes.
1: Um, I find when I'm in a city, I have uh, more desire to get lost in my thoughts because there's so much stimulation around me, like such a full bombardment of the senses, and quite maybe quite unpleasant things like fumes and traffic, advertising, and manipulative messages. So there's more of a tendency to just go into my thoughts, to kind of almost to get away from that. Um, much more than if I was here. There's not so much to want to get away
0: from. I just wanted to you had in as well. Move to the country. <laughs> 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 Sorry, <laughs> couldn't resist that. <laughs> but you know, that's. I mean, i being a bit uh, flippant, but also it's, it's not entirely um, beside the point because the the uh, the more that we are I are mean, around an environment which is not based on human constructions. And um, there is that kind of stimulation. It's, it's the, the more we are able to see clearly in some respects. And uh, the, the Buddha was, was very practical. And so he was not an idealist, he was a pragmatist. And so he uh, one of the things that he talks about in his there's a wonderful teaching also here in the, in the um, middle-length discourses. The second sutta is called the Sabhasava Sutta, and it's how all the different um, different channels through which the mind flows out and gets lost. And the, one of the, the things he points to is that if you're in a place that's really distracting and confusing and dangerous, well, go to somewhere that isn't. You know, try to spend as little time as possible in the places that are dangerous and confusing. And if you've got a choice, and to um, Uh, put yourself in a situation that doesn't encourage those unwholesome qualities so part of our idealistic thinking says yeah but if I was really practicing properly I should be able to be in in the middle of the city and have total composure but uh, uh, the Buddha uh, and and the the path of practice that is described in the teachings is very practical it's like well okay maybe on an ideal level that's true (laughs) but we, we don't live in an ideal world we live in this one and so that's why meditation monasteries are often the countryside. We create these kind of sanctuaries away from the city, not because the city is an evil and horrible place, but it's just uh, there are certain aspects of the environment that make it easier to see clearly, to understand how the mind works, to see what the conditioning is that we, we have. And then through that seeing and understanding it, and we're able to develop more useful skills and, and wholesome qualities to... To work with the mind so that you know like a, if you want to perform an operation you you know you go to an operating theater that's really clean <laughs> you, you create an environment that's 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 suited to the task that you want to that you want to take on you don't do an operation in a bus shelter you know down in the london underground you know <laughs> unless you <laughs> you've got no choice but uh so that you're, you're looking at the degree to which you can exercise a choice, and you do. But then the degree that you can't exercise a choice, then you just look at what the, what the effects of that are. So even when you are in London and you're saying, oh, look at that, my mind just wants to get lost in all these thoughts, just that, that aspect of mindfulness can recognize, oh, look at that, I'm really getting lost in my inner world, because I don't want to deal with the smell of the underground or the, the, the noise from the street or the, the adverts. Look at that. And that mind which sees it happening is not caught in it. So that aspect of establishing mindfulness is, is really important. That even though there's, so in a way, confusing or, or um, uh, irritating perceptions are there, we still don't have to, to start a, a fight against them. And, that, and just being able to see, oh, look at that, the mind doesn't want to be with that, it wants to switch off and, and get away. Look at this, this is what's happening. And the degree to which we can see that pattern occurring is the, the degree to which we're, the heart's really free from, from being caught up in that. Yes?
1: Is it ever okay to be unspoken? Is it ever mindful or appropriate to... Well, um, how does one know... If there's a situation in which intuitively you feel something might need to be said, but can you ever know that that's not just coming from your own reactive self rather than being appropriate for that situation or person or conflict?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in a way, bringing mindfulness, you know, developing the quality of mindfulness helps us to see our own motivation. Because certainly there are times when it really is good to be taking decisive action, <laughs> speaking out. Absolutely. Um, but it takes a lot of mindfulness to know our own motivation and what's better to, to be really clear about where that's coming from. So like if, you, if you're looking after a child and, and the, the child, little two-year-old, drops a, a colored ball and it rolls off into the road, you know, and so the kid's running out after it, you, know, you have no second thoughts about grabbing the kid's T-shirt and yanking it out of the way of the car. That's coming along because they're they're chasing the ball and they don't see the car that's coming. So you need to take a, a decisive and firm action, even which is going to hurt the child, because you because you love the child and you want to protect it. So similarly, um, you know, you know your motivation is is um, is wholesome and, and helpful, even though ah, why did you hurt me? <laughs> and uh, you know, the Buddha pointed this out uh, that. Uh, even if you, uh, is something that might be hurtful, if the, you know, that sometimes the, the appropriate and helpful thing is, is to take an action which which might be um, upsetting to others, and, uh, and in that teaching because that, they, they uh, the Buddha is being accused of, uh, of saying, well, how could you be an arahant? You know, how could you be an enlightened an enlightened being? Because sometimes you say things that people get upset with, or you you, know, you, you are uh, you say things that. That uh, uh, people find offensive or, or put people on the spot, and he said he gives this example of if, if you had a little child you know, and the prince he was talking to had his infant child on his lap. He said, "Well, if you, if your little child got something stuck in her mouth, a, a stone or a stick, you know, and you saw she was choking on that, you know, what would you do?" And he said, "Well, I'd try and get the, the stick or the, the stone out of her mouth." And and the Buddha said, "Well, you know, even if it you know, even if it drew blood, you try to get it out." of it "Well, of course, because I you know." I care for the child. And the Buddha says, similarly, you know, if I know something is, is true and beneficial, if it, even if it's painful to the, uh, the person, it's not because I want to cause them pain, but it's because out of compassion. I'll choose the right time and choose the, the best words I can to put that across. So, being attentive to our own motivation, that takes a lot of work. <laughs> and there's no real substitute than just watching our own minds and and then uh, learning to, to see and to trust our, our own motivation and, and just learning from, from experience. But it's certainly, like I was saying, being uh, coming from a place of acceptance doesn't mean being passive. It doesn't mean being, being a doormat. We're just, okay, fine, you take whatever you like. <laughs> it's uh, Sometimes we need to speak up. But if we're coming from a place of self-righteousness or um, veiled aggressions or passive-aggressive, like "fine, have it your way," I'm I'm fine, I'm fine, it's, it's all right, I'm fine. I'm fine. Then, <laughs> then you know you're not. I, I'm not fine at all. <laughs> but uh, the more that we are able to. Particularly, use the meditation if there's like you're in a situation that, say, there's a repeated conflict, or that you have a um, a particular uh, tense relationship of some kind, or some situation that 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 has come up to to not just try and deal with that when you're face to face with the other person or the other people, but in in a period of meditation to to bring that up and to to look at what arises in your mind to, to remember the, the the encounter or to bring that person's name to mind, and just to see what comes up and and uh, if there's thoughts of or feelings of, uh, of of anger or aversion or and to notice that and acknowledge that, or if there's feelings of of um, you know, sincere trying to find a way forward to to, uh, to develop a more wholesome, healthy communication, then looking at that and then to whatever degree we see there are, yeah, you know, un- unhelpful, unskillful attitudes there, just say, oh look, yeah, I want to tear the guy's head off. <laughs> That's what I want to do. <laughs> oh, okay, duly noted, so probably best to sit on this for a bit. <laughs> and that... Uh, yeah, I'm not entirely joking. If you see that, that whenever you bring a person's name up, it's, there's, there's no room around it. Just recognizing, okay, well, I, right now I can't let go of that. It's just, I feel you know, hurt and angry and resentful, and that's what's there. So best just to keep away from it as much as possible. But again, like I was saying to our friend here, that just that knowledge of, oh, look, that's what's going on now. This is, this is the angry mind. Just that gives us a deg- There's a degree of, of real mindfulness there that, that's genuinely liberating. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the, the Foundations of Mindfulness Discourse, in the, the third section of that, on Chittanupasana, the mindfulness of, of moods and mind states, the, the, the Buddha really makes no distinction between the wholesome and the unwholesome. It's completely non-moral. Like knowing the angry mind is angry, knowing the mind free from anger is free from anger, knowing the distracted mind is distracted, knowing the undistracted mind is undistracted. It's all completely even. So, uh, that degree of mindfulness of just, oh, here, yeah, this is what's happening. This is what's here now. You're not condoning that angry and resentful feeling, but you're recognizing, oh, here it is. <laughs> and uh, one very helpful teaching that Ajahn Chah gave was um, that is very often quoted is. 70 or 80% of the practice is knowing that we should let go and not being able to. <laughs> and that's a really helpful teaching because you're recognizing, like, I'm completely addicted to this. <laughs> <laughs> this is really stupid. And I, I mean, I'm even saying to myself, this is really stupid and I'm still doing it. Uh, but there, there is that. And again, it's not justifying it. But you say, I'm really just hurting myself hanging on to this. But right now the the letting go the the one that's doing the saying let go <laughs> is working for a different company than the one who's <laughs> doing the holding on I mean, they're not, the the two are not meeting and so what uh, what Ajahn Chah is saying in that teaching is that just that quality of mindfulness of just bringing the attention to that yeah there's just a lot of bitterness and resentment there you're not condoning it you're not you're not pretending it's not there you're not wallowing in it but you're... Recognizing, yeah, there's there's a tight grip there. That's really painful. And then, just by sustaining that attention, then what what you find um, is that over over a certain period of time, that that which has been conditioning that that clinging, slowly that wears away, and that quality of attention. You're, in that you're not creating the causes for that clinging to be. To be resuscitated, to be maintained, so that as those past effects, you know, past causes wear out and you, you are you feel that clinging going on, at a certain point something goes I'm tired of this. <laughs> I just I just had enough. And that letting go happens not from a place of reasoning, or because you should, to be a good Buddhist, <laughs> you should let go, but just something says I'm tired of this, Yeah, you know. why am I doing this to myself? <sighs> and there's a, a letting go that happens from a, a far more basic uh, and, and real level. Yes. Going, to, uh, going back to uh, what you were talking before about the Relentness and acceptance, the, my Buddhist reading of Upekka uh, comes in. So is there a difference between Metta, loving kindness that you're saying about? Upeka. Um, well, they're, they're related in that way. In a way, it's uh, it's stressing more of that that so sort opaque of quality of loving kindness. So upeka is um, uh, it's also to do with um, not being so sort of caught up in agitation. So the um, that quality, like being at the centre of things. So it doesn't. It also, it's also. It's. When everything around you is, is agitated and busy, upeka is, that, is finding that place that's not busy. <laughs> so, in a way, it's, it's a more subtle quality than, than loving kindness. But all of the Brahma Viharas, they, they all overlap quite a bit. Um, there's a, one of the aspects of, of upeka, loving, uh, of um, equanimity, is called Tatra Majatata which means in the middleness. <laughs> it's a wonderful word. Tatra, uh, or in the middle of thatness. Ta- tatra means that. Uh, "Maja" means middle. And ta at the end means nest. So in the, middleness, uh, in the middle of thatness. <laughs> so whatever it is, the upekar is like, whatever it is, just being in the middle of it. Being at the center of things, finding that, that balancing point. But... Uh, yeah, and uh, well, this particular, because I, I think also why why this is a I find for myself a helpful way of of characterizing meta is because we tend to think of meta as liking trying to like everything, and that right, and, but it's uh, so it, it, get, it we can pick it up and think of it in terms of sen, uh, of uh, trying to cultivate a positive emotional feeling towards things. But when you're when you've just been attacked, or you know someone's you know uh, uh, just told you that your your bank has collapsed, you know, or that your child is sick, you know that, um, or that the doctor who's looking after your child is incompetent and drunk, you know, it's hard to feel. Oh, may you be happy, and <laughs> <laughs> not as happy as that, you know, <laughs> you know where. So we can sometimes misread metta as being a sort of positive or sweet sentiment. And that's why this kind of expression I I find is more helpful because you're getting in a way more to the very heart, the root of of metta, which is that everything belongs. And that it's a uh, recognizing that um, it's more important to have when when you say that you you're confronted with an incompetent doctor or or you know that you can smell booze on on their breath and so you you're feeling resentment then metta is it's not just trying to climb over your feeling of resentment to have meta for the incompetent doctor but having meta for your resentment having that, that oh this is the this is the, the the feeling that's arising right now this is what's here so rather than trying to get, climb over our negativity to get to some positive place imagined on the other side you and this is again what uh, what lumpo will would always stress it's you're meeting the 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 the, the thing that's coming first <laughs> what's right in the front that's what you use the the quality of metta to to work with so it's a an acceptance of the feelings of resentment, or, oh, if I was a good Buddhist, I wouldn't hate the bastard. <laughs> no, this is, this is the um, having acceptance for that, I hate the guy. How can he do that feeling? That's what's coming. And again, you're not just taking that as an excuse to be passive, but recognizing, whoa, that's a strong reaction. So maybe I should take a few breaths before I make that phone call. <laughs> okay. Now, how do I want to say this? Okay. So that you're you in a way using the quality of meta in a very direct way of dealing with your own mind states as much as you are to deal to relate to other other beings. So maybe over this side there must be yes, there's a hand at the back there. Yeah, um,
1: yeah I like to be mindful. So in a situation when I see, observe, and pay attention at present, and yet my mind is humming a song, am I not being mindful?
0: Well, you can be mindful of several things at the same time. <laughs> the, uh, uh, if uh, the fact that the, 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 the song is going on, is um, you're aware of that, and, you, and then there's the thought, look at that, I'm trying to be mindful and this darn tune, keeps playing itself. <laughs> Being mindful of that as well. So mindfulness doesn't just mean focusing the attention on a single thing. That uh, we can be, like, being mindful of this moment, yeah? Like, that mindfulness also involves sampajanya, uh, clear comprehension, which means paying attention to an object, but also the the context. Like, I was aware of the fact that all the questions had come from this side of the room, (laughs) or the middle. (laughs) Okay, it's about time to have a question from the other side of the room and seeing that the clock is at ten to four, so we have got about ten minutes left to play with. Um so that you're taking in the whole scope not just a single object of say this question but the context that it's appearing in and also satipanya the, the aspect of wisdom along with when mindfulness is fully developed then it's also recognizing that what we're experiencing is patterns of thought, feeling, perception sight, sound, smell, taste, touch taking shape in, in our consciousness that this is all happening in our minds right? this sala is in your mind. I'm not saying that, that there's no external basis for that, <laughs> but everything we know about this room is known through our mind, right? It's woven, this, our experience of this moment is woven together through what we see, what we hear, what we feel, our memories, our thoughts. It puts it together and says, oh, Sunday afternoon, 10 to 4, <laughs> the sun is out. <laughs> But that's patterns of of mental activity that are known here. If I close my eyes, the visual world vanishes. Open them again, the the visual world appears. So to be mindful is not just having the attention focused on a single object, but it's knowing uh, uh, the the content of the present moment and being fully aware of that, whether that's multifaceted or whether it's a, a single thing. And the, the more that we develop mindfulness and, and wisdom, yeah you know, sati sad sati panya mindfulness, mindfulness and clear comprehension and mindfulness and wisdom, we develop that whole uh, range of qualities, then we find that we 're actually more able to do a lot of things at the same time. so some of you might think that multitasking is anathema like if <laughs> you shouldn 't be doing too many things at once, but Actually, multitasking is considered a sign of great spiritual accomplishment. <laughs> In Sanskrit, it's called Ashtavadana. It's, it's a sign of, a, of an accomplished spiritual teacher. So that, uh, and it's, it, when you, when you re- see how mindfulness works, you recognize that, I'm not en- encouraging people to be doing 15 things at once, <laughs> or sort of driving, having a, a cell phone conversation, and... <laughs> listening to the music and talking to the other people in the car at the same time. Because it, it can be dangerous too. But the more that, that we develop mindfulness in a full and complete way, the more that we can be fully aware of a whole range of different activities and concerns and dispositions. Like s- being around someone like, like Ajahn Chah with a, you know, a large group of people present. Have, every day there will be like an informal... Uh, he would receive visitors and guests informally uh, under his kuti uh, from about ten in the morning, often till like, ten in the evening, midnight sometimes. Just a constant flow of people, and, and so it was extraordinary to be uh, to to see how he was aware and to be there in the midst of of him attending to the the concerns of the monastics and the the, the visiting dignitaries and the, the local farmers and the visiting uh, visiting monks and and people like got is important questions and you know, little conversations and recognizing old friends from the village and 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 he could keep like sixteen pots on the boil simultaneously and and he was out doing absolutely nothing the whole time <laughs> 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 uh quite amazing quite quite amazing how he he could just divide his attention and be really uh, uh, fully att- uh, fully concerned and attuned to. The different people that were there. So, don't—it's uh, a mistake to think of mindfulness as being a kind of deliberate attention to a single thing. It's much more like an unconfused awareness of the present moment, and that uh, when we um, are using that, uh, the, the meditation and uh, and the precepts, in particular, to to develop mindfulness as an ongoing quality, then then it becomes more of a of a, like a natural way of relating to experience rather than a thing that I'm doing, like I'm being mindful. <laughs> like uh, y- years ago, when I was here in, in England, um, I remember chatting with this 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 fellow, um, and he said, "You know, Bhante, it's, it's very difficult." Um, you know, trying to practice with my family, because they're not very sympathetic to Buddhism. I said, well, you know, how do you mean? He says, well, you know, well, I'm trying to eat my breakfast mindfully, and they, they give me all this grief. <laughs> and I said, why would they give you grief for eating your breakfast? And he said, well, you know, I'm trying to be mindful. And then they say, Dad, hurry up, we've got to get to school. And I, said, well, I, I, could, I could envisage this whole scene happening around the breakfast table, and you're know, trying to, you know, Dad trying faithfully to be mindful, doing everything in slow motion, like lifting, <laughs> lifting, lifting, You know, as his shreddies are getting soggy on the way. And his, and his poor daughter's going, oh, Dad, I've got to get to school. Come on, the bus is much better. And misinterpreting that, the fact that, well, if, you, if you're mindful of the fact that the clock is moving and the kids have got to get to school, so eat your breakfast <laughs> and get with, you know, get with the program, that would be the mindful thing, is not to be... You know, carefully attentive to the movement of the shreddies, (laughs) but to eat your breakfast at a speed that fits in with your family's needs, and to that's the mindful thing to do. So those three elements: uh, um, mindfulness, uh, Ajahn Chah would he would compare that's like sati on its own is like the hand. It's just simply that which which cognizes an object, like it's uh, that which takes hold of a particular object or collection of objects in the present. Sampajanya is like the arm the, the, so that's what moves the hand around and then Panya, wisdom, is like the body that the arm and the hand are connected to without Panya the arm and the hand are kind of useless <laughs> they need to really be active and to be really liberating then they need to be connected to wisdom um, but that's a helpful way of characterizing how mindfulness clear comprehension and, and wisdom function together and that uh, once we we uh, see how that works then we realize that oh we can be mindful with a lot of things going on you can be in 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 thick traffic you can be in a busy place at work you can be um, here in a hall full of people with 16 you know like in the tea break with 16 conversations going on within you know close range and you can be attentive to what's going on yeah not that you're tracking every conversation but you know this is a whole buzz of conversation happening and it's you know, five minutes before we're supposed to be finished, so I better drink my tea up. <laughs> and so then it, we don't have to have simplicity in order to be mindful. There can be a lot of com- complexity in activity, but rather like with, with equanimity, it's like finding that place in the middle. So mindfulness, sati and upeka, they're both factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness uh, and upeka it's like being uh, attentive to the whole range of what's going on, and without confusion. So maybe one more, yes?
1: Is, where, do you find, <clears throat> where do you find mindfulness within the body? Is it, would it belong to the atma or where does the anatma come in, in that case?
0: Well, mindfulness, uh, it, you can't locate it anywhere in, in space. But we can bring mindfulness to the different aspects of the body. So we can be, mindfulness of, we can be mindful of the, the, um, uh, the sensations of the, in the body, feeling its weight. We can be mindful of the feeling of temperature. We can be mindful of the movement of the body, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. So uh, there are many, many different ways we can cultivate mindfulness in relationship to the body, but you can't say it's... it's located anywhere you know, the, in, in Buddhist psychology the, the, the Buddha never talks about the mind being located anywhere uh, and the, in fact when um, uh, when he's pressed on that he, uh, he points out that you, you, know, you can't find yourself when you, when you look for a self you can't find it in the world of this or in the world of that or any place between the two you can't find a a self in the realm of the object, of the object or the subject or, or any place between them and so those teachings on on anata on anatman uh, what they are designed to do is to help us notice where we habitually think of ourselves being like sort of somewhere located behind our eyes or, or uh, yeah in, you know in our chest or that that's sort of the the I am feeling might sort of Try to locate itself, but uh, the teachings on anatta are uh, a kind of analytical method to help us uh, recognize where those habits of identification occur, and to to learn to let go. To see that you can't truly find a self, a me, an I, a permanent, independent self in in the body, in thoughts, in feelings, in perceptions, even in consciousness. Uh, and rather than trying to define a, you know, what the self is or uh, to define or, or categorize you know, a sort of true and individual real self, the Buddha uh, approached the whole issue from a different angle by saying, learn to, uh, learn to stop identifying with what you're not and then what is real will become apparent. Does that make sense?
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, but at the same time, that is the case. But if you cannot find the mindfulness, would it be then part of an impermanent aftermath?
0: Well, uh, that's up to the individual to to discover through through meditation, because what we find is that. The the more you practise, the more you can recognise there is mindfulness is is there, awareness is there, but you can't it can't be located in any formation in in a body or in a thought or in a memory or in a, a perception of any kind. But uh, awareness sustains itself. Now, to the thinking mind, that might be frustrating, <laughs> but. Uh, but what, it, what the, this kind of approach is, is aimed at is rather than trying to create a, a, theor- a, a flawless theoretical model, it's a means of, of uh, helping us to free the, the heart, free the mind from limitation, from identification and that um, in, a, in a sense learning to recognize that, that awareness does not apply or even I-ness does not apply. And that when those, the, the feelings of I am, or the feelings of time, the feeling of location, when those are let go of, then there's a, a, an acute and, and bright awareness of the present moment, and a great happiness and, and peacefulness. And then as soon as the thinking mind jumps in and says, ah, that's what I am. <laughs> I am the happiness of the present moment. And it's just another thought that's been grabbed. <laughs> so... It's saying that the, uh, the I am habit is just trying to grab a thought or a feeling or a sensation. And uh, the approach of the, of the Buddha was to keep saying, no, no, that's just a thought. Don't identify with the thought. Let go, let go, let go, let go. <laughs> and it's interesting that um, those habits of identification, of, uh, of craving, uh, based on, uh, on the feeling of mine, of ownership, tanha, and then views, the, the, the view of self, like self-view, the, um, uh, the, um, the this is me uh, feeling, and then mana, conceit, the I am feeling, these tanha, ditti and mana, the view of a permanent self, the feeling of I am, the, the, the feeling of ownership, those are called the papancha dhammas those are the, 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 in a way the attributes of proliferation. <laughs> so anyway, that brings us back in a, a perfect loop to the, the, the beginning of the talk where I said this is learning how to not find fault with the world is, is how when we let go of the sense of self, our perception of the world changes radically. So when we let go of those papanchadhammas, we let go of the uh, this is me, this is mine, this is myself. When those are let go of, The the vapancha stops, (laughs) that conceptual proliferation stops and then there is a wonderful quality of accord with with the world as it is experienced. and We we find that uh, not just a a balance and a a peacefulness in the way the world is, but also a clarity and a readiness to act in relationship to the world without confusion. So if something needs to be done, we can just jump in and do it. If nothing needs to be done, we can leave it alone. So that's, uh, that's how we find the world to be when the, when the Papuncha stops. So speaking of Papuncha stopping, <laughs> thank you all very much for your wonderful attention. And this is the last of my Sunday afternoon talks this year. I think Lumpur's is going to do the next two. So I look forward to being present for those. And uh, have a, a good day.